0: Okay, Matthew chapter 22 and verses 1 through 14. And again Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who are invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again he sent other servants, saying, Go, therefore, to the main roads, and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. So, today we are finishing our summer series on the parables of Jesus. Jesus often taught through parables, and as we saw uh, early on, In this series, Jesus taught in parables because it's sort of a way of opening up um, our understanding of important truths in a kind of simple way. I mean, if you just teach somebody information, if you just say, here's a fact, you know, it's kind of hard to process that. But if you tell a story, sometimes people can kind of hear that information and accept it, not just as information, but even into their hearts. It's something that they can really understand and maybe live out a little more easily. And so Jesus told many parables. And of course, we've not been able to cover all of them by, by any, uh, any measure, but I hope that what we have covered has been a blessing uh, to this point. Starting from next week, uh, we'll begin our new series for the fall, which is going to be on the life of a disciple, um, although I guess for the English service, it'll actually be two weeks from now. But in any event, we're going to be you know, starting that this month. And uh, in that series, we're going to be thinking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And that's going to be a very practical series. Um, rather than kind of theological, and we're going to be thinking basically about how should we live as Christians? What does it mean to live as a Christian? But in fact, today's final parable, this parable is actually a really good segue, a good transition into that next series. I will say today, today though, that this parable is one of Jesus' most difficult parables. Um, Now, there's many reasons why we might say that, but one of the main reasons is because the kind of image That this parable sort of paints of god it makes us uncomfortable right we we like thinking of god as the type of father um, that we see for example in the parable of the prodigal son right that that's the kind of god that we like to think about but here this king who symbolizes god seems quite harsh uh, maybe even vengeful so the imagery in this parable at least on the surface it makes us very uncomfortable Right? We kind of see this king, and we're like, if that's God, that, that sort of makes me uh, uncomfortable. And so this certainly can be a difficult, a difficult parable to understand and to process, but it's also a very important parable for all of us who want to be a part of God's kingdom. In fact, it's precisely because of how uncomfortable the parable makes us that it is so important. Uh, the writer C.S. Lewis said that we should never avert or turn our eyes from Those elements of our faith that seem puzzling, that kind of trouble us, or even repellent. Those things that we just don't like. Because it's precisely in those elements that we'll find things that we don't yet know, but that we really need to know. Um, I think this is a really important point. Because, you know, if, if you think about God or if you think about religion in general, okay, if I'm making up a religion if I'm making up a God, I'm going to make one up that fits everything that I want and fits things that make me comfortable, right? So that God will never judge me for anything, and he will only ever, you know, do whatever I want him to do, and so on. That's the kind of God I'm going to imagine, and that's the kind of religion I'm going to imagine. It's going to fit my needs, personally. Now, it may not fit other people's needs, but it's going to fit my needs. But if there is a real God, if there really is a God who created everything— a God of that that much power, that much wisdom, right? A God that smart, we might say, is definitely going to have some things that I'm not going to understand, right? I think that's natural. Like, there's going to be parts of, of God like that. If he is real and he has existed before the universe, then, of course, there's going to be things that I don't understand, maybe even don't even like. Um, and if there is a religion, if there is something that he has taught us, given us, I would expect that there's going to be things in that that challenge me and make me uncomfortable. And so that something making me uncomfortable doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. But at least I think that we should expect there to be things in any religion that is true that make us uncomfortable, that that challenge us. And if we're thinking of God as he really is, we should expect for him to challenge us. And I think that's kind of what C.S. Lewis was saying is, you know, we need to embrace those things to some extent because that's where we actually learn the things that we need to know. And I think that definitely applies to this parable. Um, The parable of the wedding feast serves as a reminder to us that how we respond to God's invitation, God has given us an invitation, but how we respond matters to him. And that's a reminder that we all, I think, desperately need. So... Uh, we're going to think about all of these things, um, but I want to think about this parable by noticing four—that's three—four key points. <laughs> we're going we're to think about four key points here um, that tell us both about God's invitation and the kind of response that He expects from us. And those four points are: a wedding feast, a rebellion, a messy banquet, and a garment. Okay, a wedding feast, a rebellion a messy banquet, and a garment. So first, a wedding feast. Now, in order to uh, understand this parable, one of the most important things that we need to understand is what kind of wedding feast we're talking about here. So when we hear of a wedding feast, right, we think of like a parent throwing a nice wedding reception for their kids. So the kid's just gotten married, and they're throwing this nice wedding party for their kid, and that's how we think about it. And so when we imagine this parable or we see the story, we think, okay, So then people don't show up, or they show up in the wrong clothes, and the parents get super angry and kill them. (laughs) We're like, okay, that that seems a little over the top, you know, maybe a bit much. Um, But we have to remember that this is a king. This is a king giving a wedding feast for his son. And in the context of the first century, this kind of a celebration is really more than a personal family event. It's actually um, a, a, a political event, is really what this is. Okay, it's not just something that the king invites his friends to. It's, it's a political event that he's inviting, you know, generally, at the, at the starting point, hire people to, you know, various, uh, I don't know, officials and things like that. that. That's what this is. This is a political event. And so to attend the celebration was less about being a friend of the king and more about being loyal to the king. That's really the key here. Um, in fact, to be a friend of the king means to be loyal to the king. So to reject the king's invitation to his son's wedding feast, to the prince's wedding feast, was to insult the king, first of all, but it's also to reject his royal family line, right? I mean, because the, the son in, in the story, in the context of the story, would be the next in line. And so if you reject that, you're basically saying, I don't, I don't care about your royal family line. I don't care about who's next. I don't care about your, your kingship or anything, and then, of course, to go on to kill his messengers, I mean, that's open rebellion. That is complete rebellion against the king. Now, this doesn't necessarily take care of some of the harshness of the story, but I think it helps us understand that the king is not overreacting here. Okay, He is reacting to rebellion, to people who have openly rebelled against him. Um, in fact, those listening to Jesus at the time, the people in the audience who were listening to Jesus' story here, probably were, would have applauded the king. They would have thought, well, of course he's going to do that. Like, that's the natural thing to do. What else would a king do if people rebel against him? Now, we'll get to the, the wedding garment issue in a little bit, um, but even there, it's important to understand this context, okay? Acceptance or rejection of the king's invitation is not just a personal preference thing. It's not, whether, it's not an issue of, like, whether you have the time to come or not. Acceptance or rejection of his invitation is a statement of loyalty to the king. And it's about submitting to his authority and to his reign. But that context actually tells us something really important about God as well. Okay, so notice how Jesus starts this parable. He says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. Okay, compared to a king. Now, oftentimes, growing up at least, this is just my my background, but growing up, when people talk about God's kingdom or the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God... Usually people think about the place. In other words, heaven, right? Uh, Just going to heaven like when you die kind of thing. That's what most people think about. But we shouldn't forget that to talk about God's kingdom is also to talk about God being king. So God is king in a place, we might say, but God is king. He's ruler. In other words, God isn't just the creator of everything, though he is that, okay? He's also a ruler. He's the true king. I mean, this is what we see, for example, I mean, we could think of many passages, but a, a very famous one is Philippians chapter 2 and verses 10 and 11, which says that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay? So that is a statement of kingship, right? Bowing the knee before the king. That's what we see in the Bible. That God is king. He's, he's a king. He's a ruler. And so he has subjects who submit to him, And one day he will bring everything under his rule. That's really kind of the message of the gospel. That's the message of his kingdom that Jesus taught. When he talks about the message of the kingdom, it's that God is king. And one day he's going to bring everything under his rule. And he invites you to join that. That's kind of in a a nutshell, we might say, the message of the kingdom. So God is king. That's, That's the first thing we see here. But the second thing is that God is preparing a wedding feast. God is preparing a wedding feast. The imagery that we see in the Bible for God's kingdom is that of celebration, And I think a lot of times when people kind of think about God's kingdom, when they think about heaven or whatever, um, even resurrection, we kind of think it's just going to be boring, right? Like, just like, I mean, better than the alternative, right? Sure. But still, uninteresting. Um, You know, we think about going to heaven, and we're kind of just like, I don't really know what that means. I think a lot of people have the view that basically this life, this world is really the best. And maybe people live after they die, maybe, but if they do, whatever it is, is not as good as this life. This is really the best world that there is. And many religions throughout history have been built on that, actually. It was always kind of like, yeah, you might, maybe you live after you die, maybe, whatever that means, but this world is the best world. This is really where it's, all, where it's best. And anything that comes afterwards is still focused on this world, in fact. right? That's kind of the mindset. And so we kind of think about heaven, we're thinking like, I mean, I guess it's better than going to hell, but I don't really, it doesn't seem that interesting to me. And I think that's what we even think about in in church sometimes, like worship services, right? It's almost like they need to be like really almost boring, like they need to be. Um, And I think some people almost feel like the less emotion you have, the more holy you are, right? It's like the the less emotion you ever show, then we're being more and more holy. But you see, God, we see in the Bible, God does not separate holiness from celebration, there are two things that can go together. It's not like when you're celebrating, you're not being holy. And when you're holy, you're not being celebrating. It's together. You're both celebrating and being holy at the same time. And so we ought to think about our personal lives. You know, what does is, what is my life show to people around me? And what does our church life show to people around us? Do they see a people who understand that we're invited to a celebration? Or do they see people who seem like they're invited to like a lecture? You know, like in a lecture for eternity. That's not something that I particularly want to attend, to be totally honest with you. Um, I mean, again, it's better than being tortured, necessarily. But, like, at the same time, it's not that I want to just sit there and listen to a lecture for eternity. But that's not what God has invited us to. He's, he's invited us to celebration, to a wedding feast. And if you've ever been to a wedding and to a reception, you know it's awesome. It's, it's fun. It's celebratory. It's exciting. It's enjoyable. Um, well, some are. I mean, maybe most are. I hope they are. But um, anyway... That's what we should be doing. That's that's what we want to be showing in our lives because that's what God has invited us into. For God's part, he says, we're invited to a wedding feast. He has prepared a lavish feast full of joy, full of celebration. It's a party, it's festive, and we're invited. But there is a choice to be made about how we are going to respond to that invitation. Now, in this parable, we see this first group who are invited, and they respond by rebellion. Okay, so the king, he's gone to great lengths to prepare this feast. And just to receive, I mean, think about receiving an invitation from the king. That is a huge honor, right? On the flip side, to decline this invitation is not simply rude, but treasonous. To, to reject the king's invitation is to uh, reject his kindness and to insult him. Now, at Feast in Jesus' time, there were, in fact, two invitations. Now, normally today we think there's just one invitation. Here's the time of the party, and show up if you can. Maybe sometimes we might ask people to RSVP, you know, send, send, let me know you're coming or whatever, but that's about it. But in in Jesus' time, there were two. There was the first invitation that's sort of like the the notification. Hey, there's going to be a wedding feast. And then the second invitation said, okay, everything's ready, now it's time to come. Everything's been set, now's, now's the time to show up. So to reject that first invitation would be bad enough, but what these people actually do is they accept the first and then reject the second. So the king has sent out the second invitation saying, hey, everything's ready, and they're rejecting that. They're saying, I don't want that. I don't want your invitation. And to reject that, I mean, first of all, it's dishonest, but it's also, again, insulting. Now, on the direct level, if we're just thinking directly about the parable, this is referring to the Jewish leaders at the time. It's thinking about uh, what Jesus calls the chief priests and the Pharisees. These are the leaders among the Jews at the time. And uh, we actually see this just two verses before this parable. They clearly understand Jesus is talking about them, and they're not too happy about it, actually. Um, But uh, he's talking about them, not just them, but also people throughout Israel's history, the Jewish history of people who had killed the prophets because they didn't like what they were saying. And ultimately, the same people who are going to kill Jesus right? That just down the road from here. I mean, down the road in the story. Um, God had invited them, but they rejected that and there was going to be judgment. And in fact, there had been judgment to some degree um, in Israel already, but we should not be too naive to see our own tendencies in this group as well. Now look at, look at verse five for a second. What, what happens? These people are invited and what do they do? They pay no attention. One goes off to his farm. The other goes off to his business. In other words, they're preoccupied. They're too busy. They thought, I have better things to do. The king is throwing a wedding feast for his son. Okay, he's got a royal festival. He's honored them with an invitation. And they think their daily affairs are more important than going to this. And this is really a very foolish thing to do for two reasons. Okay, and I think we often do the same thing, by the way. I and mean, we often let our kind of lives get in the way of God's invitation. And again, it's very foolish for two reasons. First of all, whenever we let our daily lives get in the way of going into God's kingdom and participating in that, we miss out on something amazing. So I want you to imagine for a second, you had like your best friend, okay, your best friend's getting married and they're going to have a wedding overseas. Maybe it's like in Hawaii or maybe it's like in the Swiss Alps or something like that. Okay. And they've invited you. You're going to be like, you know, the, the best man or the maid of honor, or whatever. Right. Okay. So you're going out there and, You're going to stay at a beautiful resort. I mean, it's just this amazing five-star hotel kind of thing um, with a huge room. I mean, your room's going to be nice and big. Uh, You know, it's got the jacuzzi in it. It's got a beautiful view out over whatever, you know, the view is there. And the food, of course, is going to be incredible. It's a buffet, all you can eat, you know, whatever you want. They've got everything there. And the trip is totally paid for, completely. They're paying for everything. You don't have to pay a dime. All you have to do is show up, okay? Lodging, travel, everything paid for. Now, can you imagine saying, I, I kind of got to take care of my yard. You know, I'm not sure. I kind of got to cut the grass or maybe like, I don't know. It's kind of a hassle to find somebody to cover for me at work. It's kind of a pain. I don't know if I can do that. Like, of course, we're not going to react that way. Right. Of course not. What are we going to do? We're going to bend over backwards to try to go to that. Of course. If for no other reason, then that's an amazing opportunity. Like who wouldn't want to go? Now, obviously, we might think there might be somebody who just couldn't, whatever. But the point is, as much as possible, we're going to show up to that wedding because we know how awesome that is, how that's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But the thing is, we do this with God's invitation. He's invited us to something amazing, and we just are like, yeah. you know, I kind of got better things to do. No, no, you don't have better things to do. There is nothing better to do than, partici- to, than to participate in God's kingdom. And so it's foolish to do that because we're missing out. We are missing out. But it's also foolish because, as I said, to reject this invitation is effectively to tell the king, you know, I don't like you and I don't care about your kingdom. That's basically what we're doing. So it's foolish on two levels. And that's what we do when we reject God's invitation. I mean, if I'm rejecting God's invitation because I think I have better things to do, At best, it shows that I don't understand who God is and what he's invited me into. At best, it shows that. But really what it is to do is to say, I'm going to rebel against the king of the universe. The one who, just out of his own imagination, created everything with a word. He spoke and created all things. That he has the power to create this entire universe, to create life, to create beauty and all of this stuff from nothing. And, and I'm going to tell him I'm not interested in you. Why? Why would I do that? If we really understand who God is and what He has invited us into, then we will see there is no greater honor I could ever receive in my life. Nothing could match what God has offered me. Right? Again, we'd bend over backwards to go to that overseas wedding. I mean, imagine if the Emperor of Japan, or um, you know, I guess now the King of England. When I wrote this, I wrote the Queen of England, but unfortunately she has passed. So, the King of England. Like, imagine that he invites you and says, I'm going to have a banquet. Come come to this feast. I mean, what are you going to do? Just be like, "Yeah, I can't really make it. No, you're going to try to do everything you can. And they don't even have power anymore. They can't even do anything, really. They're just, you know, figureheads. I mean, important figureheads, but still, they don't actually have authority anymore. So how can we make such silly excuses when the king of the universe says, come join my kingdom. Come to this banquet. Come to this feast. Why would we let such silly things get in the way? Now, because of this rebellious group, though, so we've got this first group. They're invited, and they say, nope, I'm not coming, and they kill the messengers, and so on. So because they've rebelled, the king in the parable opens up the feast to a very different crowd of people. So he's gone to those initial people, but now in verse 9, the king sends his servants out into the roads, and basically just invites everybody, okay? In fact, yeah, verse 10 tells us both bad and good are invited. So the king is basically going to the street. And he's saying, hey, you, you, you're invited. You, you over there, you over there, all of you are invited, right? Slaves, peasants, prostitutes, it doesn't matter. If you're on the street and the king's servants meet you, you're going to get an invitation to the king's banquet. You are invited. And so I want you to just try to imagine that scene for a second. Just imagine that. The king has prepared an elaborate banquet, okay? He's got his palace It's decorated, there's music, there's the, I mean, you can imagine the smell of all the food, it's just, it's freshly cooked, it's laying out, everything's all set, it's this amazing celebration, but instead of, you know, being filled with guests from far off countries, people with, you know, clout, with respect, with kind of a social high rank, uh, people with beautiful clothing and all that, instead you have a hall, all of that beauty filled with people literally found on the streets. Right? Just literally picked up off the streets. Come on in. Here you are. I mean, these people are uneducated. They're poor. They're nobodies. And yet they're invited into this. I mean, imagine the King's Hall. is filled with the amazing food, the decorations, the music. And everyone in attendance literally came from the street. Now, there's an obvious question here about verses 11 through 14, about the garment, and we're going to get to that just in a minute here. Um, but for now, I want us to realize that this imagery... Tells us something important about God's kingdom. It tells us something important about the church. So, this banquet that the king has set in the story is not going to be a high class affair, right? This isn't going to, it was going to be that, presumably, but it's not now. The banquet is going to be, we might say, messy, right? This is a ragtag group of low class nobodies. And that's what the banquet's probably going to look like. They're probably not going to eat the right way, you know. Sometimes I do, uh, just on the side, I'll do like photography jobs. And occasionally they'll send me to kind of nice hotels or like a nice uh, restaurant. And I always feel so out of place. I have no idea what I'm doing. There's like, you know, different forks, different spoons. I'm like, I don't know what to do. Um, And that's kind of what we can imagine here. These people who like, they don't know which fork to eat with. They don't know how they're supposed to be eating, what it's all supposed to look like. Um, You know, maybe they don't tell quite the right jokes or just talk the right way or whatever. They don't sit the right way. Um, you know that's, that's kind of what we're imagining here. And if our churches are going to reflect God's kingdom, I think our churches are going to be the same way to some extent. You know, if, we're, if we're going to the people that the king has sent us to, as he sent his ser- servants out, if we're going to those people, the church is going to be messy. The church is going to have people who don't have everything together. It's going to have people from all walks of life. right? We'll have people who kind of make things uncomfortable perhaps a little bit. Maybe they make us uncomfortable. Maybe they don't dress or talk quite the way we expect or, you know, maybe they don't look like the kind of person that we think God should invite. But imagine the king telling you, I've invited that person and you saying, no, I'm not going to talk to them. N- no, you don't do that. If the king has invited them, who am I to say you're not invited? Who am I to try to keep them out? Right? Who am I to make conditions that God has not made? Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't expectations. And we're going to get to that in just a moment here. But we have to understand that God's expectations are often not the same as our expectations. That's the thing we really need to understand. Sometimes God's expectations, oftentimes God's expectations, are not going to be like ours. And to be honest, often it's those who should be the most prepared, the most excited to come, who say, I'm not interested. And it's the ones who should be more reluctant to come, who are most excited to enter. And that's why we see Jesus. What does Jesus do? He eats with tax collectors. He eats with sick people. He eats with the sinners of all kinds, the kind of people that in society at his time, they were all rejected. People who everybody looked down on and said, you're nothing, you're nobody. Nobody wants to be around you. Jesus said, I want to be around you. The king said, I want to be around you. It's just what he said. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. And if we're going to be like Jesus in the church, we have to be doing the same thing. We don't exclude people who God has not excluded. You know, the wedding feast Based on the guests who are present at this, in the parable, it doesn't look respectable from the outside, right? I mean, the food's great, everything's great, but the guests, there's nothing special about them. But this is the wedding feast that the king himself has thrown for his son. And to be present there to celebrate together is an incredible honor. Now, this brings us to the final question that we want to talk about, which has probably already crossed your mind. If the king is calling people from the street... Why is he so upset when one of his guests doesn't have a wedding garment? Right? I mean, you just literally called people from the street. Like, of course they're not going to be dressed properly. Why? Why are you upset at them? Well, you know, first of all, it's just—it's kind of helpful for us to understand. When we're talking about parables. Parables are not intended to literally match reality one hundred percent. That's not the point. Um, for example, we see in verse seven, in the middle of all this this feasting and this preparation, the king goes on some kind of military conquest and starts destroying cities, right? That doesn't quite fit the context of the parable, and yet there it is. Or verse 13, you know, the king ties up a guest and throws him into outer darkness. (laughs) That's obviously kind of breaking the bonds of the parable story, right? So the point of the parable isn't necessarily to match every single point and answer every single question. The point of the parable is to help us see spiritual realities, right? That's the goal here. So, you know, we have to kind of be careful about getting overly concerned about every tiny detail, you know, and trying to answer every single question, which is our tendency in modern times, but it's something I think we have to be careful about. But that said, it's important to also understand this image here accurately. So the garment here, when we think of a wedding garment, we think, like, what do I wear to a wedding today? Well, I mean, maybe if it's a beach wedding, it's different, but usually, like, if you're at a wedding, you know, you're probably going to wear at least something nice, maybe a tie, uh, maybe even a suit, it may depend on the context, you know. If you're a woman, you're going to wear maybe a dress. You're probably, like I said, if it's a beach wedding, maybe it's different or something. But generally, you're not going to just show up in shorts and a t-shirt. Probably, you're going to show up kind of wearing something a little bit nice. So that's what we imagine here. Like, and and then it seems sort of unfair, but we have to realize that actually, in the context here, this garment is nothing more than a clean garment. That's it. That's literally all that it is. The wedding garment simply means this was a clean garment that had been cleaned. That's it. It it, it had it wasn't just something they had been wearing all day long that's all covered in dirt and whatever, okay? So the expectations aren't high for these people coming in. They're not expected to have fine jewels, you know, and, and stuff like that. Um, they just needed to come in with clean clothing, which is something that pretty much anyone would have had available. I mean, obviously, if the king in the story had time to go on a military conquest, <laughs> presumably the people showing up had time to go home and wash their clothes if that was needed. Um, again, that's not the point, but you get, you get what I'm saying. like. They, there was anybody could have met this condition, and so the point is that the king, the only thing that he expects is for his guests to at least come wearing clean clothing. So if they refuse to do that, again, that's an insult to the king's honor, and to the son and to the bride. In fact, the king's question in verse twelve—if you look at verse twelve—the individual here understood this. Um, you know, the king says, "Hey, where's your wedding garment?" And what does the guy say? Well, I didn't know I needed a wedding garment, or, well, I'm too poor. I didn't know he doesn't say anything. He's just like, he doesn't have anything to say. Why? Because he knew the expectation, and he didn't care. That's the point, right? He doesn't give an answer because there is no answer, because he knew what the expectation was, and he just decided, I don't care. I just want to come into the feast as I am. I don't want to be bothered with all that stuff, right? And so really what he's doing is he's rebelling against the king. He's insulting him openly. And just like the king's not going to accept the rebellion from the first group, He's also not going to accept an open insult. Okay, so it's fine, but that still leaves an important question on our minds. If the king expected these people to come in wearing clean clothes, what does that tell us about our relationship with God and his kingdom? Well, I think to answer that question, we first need to think, well, what does this garment represent? What's Jesus trying to tell us about this garment? What does it represent spiritually? And I think the symbolism here is pretty simple. It represents repentance. In other words, it represents turning from your old life to Jesus. That's it, right? God has graciously invited us to this celebration feast. And that invitation is free, right? He's not selling tickets. <laughs> he's giving invitations. You see, he's not selling them where we have to buy it. He's just giving an invitation. But that invitation does bring certain expectations, Now, the expectation is not that we have everything together. Okay, the wedding garment needs to be clean in the story, but that doesn't necessarily mean like there's not a single little stain somewhere, you know, that's been there for years or whatever, or that it doesn't even have like the tiniest little hole in it. It's not like the king is inspecting everybody's, you know, things and looking like, oh, there's a broken string, you're out of here. You know, it's not what he's doing here. He just expects it to be clean. It's a fresh garment, in other words. It's not the same dirty, smelly thing the person's been wearing all day long. So God's invitation goes to everyone in the streets, regardless of their status, regardless of their station of life. But even though God's invitation comes to us as we are, it is not an invitation to stay as we are. That is the key. God's invitation should change us. It comes to us as we are, but it's not an invitation to stay as we are. If we understand who has invited us and what we're invited to, that should naturally change us. I mean, imagine that wedding we were talking about before, okay? So your friend has invited you to this amazing overseas wedding. You're there. Now, let's say there's a gym there at the, you know, the hotel, and you've been working out. Are you just going to go from the gym straight to the wedding ceremony, just in your you know, sweaty clothes, just be like, yeah, I've been you know, working out for an hour. I'm all sweaty and smelly, but I, I'm the best man, but I'll just stand up there. like, Of course not. Why? Because that would be super insulting, right? That would be r- really insulting to your friend, to the bride, to everything. It would just be an insult. You wouldn't do that. So why would we do that with God, (laughs) right? We kind of understand that's not even really a condition. It's just sort of common sense. Like, of course you don't show up that way. But that's often what we want to do with God. God invites us in, and we're like, well, you know, here I am. Take it or leave it, you know, and I'm not even going to bother making any changes. That's just an insult. It's rude. The person showing up with clean clothes, they're just saying, I understand what I've been invited to, and I want to honor the king. So the person who comes without the clean clothes is basically saying, I want to be at the party, but I don't care about the host at all. I'm only here for me. That's what I'm here for. It's about me. To be invited to this feast by the king, it should naturally transform us. It changes us. It makes us want to honor that person. Again, if my friend invited me to that overseas wedding, I'm going to try to have something that's going to honor what their requests are. I I want to look the way they want me to look for their wedding. I want to make sure that I'm doing a good job Because I know what they've done for me at the very least. Not to mention I just love them because they're my friend. So I'm going to want to show up and, and do the best I can for them. And how much more should we do that with God? And so even in the church, we have to be careful about what kind of people we are. Yeah, we've been invited, absolutely. Maybe we've even accepted the invitation. But do our lives show that we recognize the honor that God has given us? That's the question. And maybe we could say it another way. The question of Jesus is really confronting us with is this. Am I a disciple of Jesus? Am I a follower of Jesus? Or am I simply an admirer of Jesus? Am I just a fan of Jesus, right? Am I Jesus disciple or am I Jesus fan? Right? If I'm just a fan, well, I mean think about how many uh, fair weather fans there are in sports, right? They love the team whenever they're doing well and then when the team starts going bad, yeah, I'll watch him next year, maybe. You know, that's kind of how it is, right? It, that, that, and that's how we can be with Jesus. Like, yeah, I'm fine with Jesus as long as he's making me feel good. But as soon as there's a challenge to my life, now, nah, I'm not interested in that. See, it's easy to like Jesus. It's easy to like what he offers. It's easy to like at least some of his teaching. But am I willing to count the cost to accept what I have to lose to follow him and then go and follow him? The question isn't whether I've just accepted the invitation. The question is whether that invitation has changed me. The question is, what kind of guest am I going to be? Now again, God doesn't expect us to have everything perfectly together. God doesn't expect you to understand the Bible perfectly. You know, He doesn't expect you to do everything perfectly. And really, in the end, the one who makes us truly clean is Jesus Christ. He's the one who cleanses us. He's the one who prepares us for the feast. You know, through Jesus, God makes our sins white as snow. Through Jesus, he cleanses every stain. But if we're going to accept his invitation, God does expect us to take it seriously. And that's the point of the parable. I mean, in this present body, in this present world, there's going to be temptations. There's going to be sin. But if we are in Christ, we are a new creation already. That that resurrected life that he's promised us, that new creation that he has promised, it's already happened inside of us. It's already started now. And so there's going to be change. There's going to be growth. We will see God's invitation shaping our lives in visible ways. And that's what God wants for us. I mean, God, by his spirit, he's helping us. He wants to change our character. That's what he wants for us. I mean, you know, I, I was listening to a, a lesson here recently and the preacher challenged um, people with this question. He said, you know, what if next year God promised you, that he could make your life just everything you wanted. You would have the job you wanted. You would have the car you wanted. You would have the money you wanted. You would have whatever health you wanted. You would look the way you wanted. Literally, he would give you every single dream that you might have for this life. But there's going to be no spiritual growth, no character growth. You're, just, you're going to have everything that you want, but your character is going to remain the same, maybe even get worse. But every physical thing you want will be met. Or on the flip side, he says, or next year, you're going to have some hardships. Things are going to be tough. You're going to go through some struggles. But in that, I'm going to shape your character, and you are going to see so much growth, and you will see yourself into a different kind of person who is full of patience and love and kindness and all of those things, and I'm going to create that through those hardships. Which would you choose? I think that's a really good question for us. Which would I choose? what's actually most important to me? And what Jesus is trying to show us in this is that what's important to him is our character. What's important to him is who we are. Not just what we have, not just what we look like, but who we actually are in our hearts. Do I want to be the kind of person who has self-control? Do I want to be the kind of person who actually loves other people selflessly, not just for what I can get, but because I love them? Do I want to kind of be the kind of person who has integrity, who tells the truth, even when it's difficult, even when it costs me? Is that what I want to be? Then I absolutely need God's help. I need it. I cannot do it on my own. And God is offering that to us in his kingdom. But precisely for that reason, because he is helping us, you know, we can't assume that we can just kind of slip into the party without anybody noticing, with no changes in our lives. Living exactly the same way that we would without Jesus. The parable is a challenge to us. Has Jesus changed my life? Is Jesus really shaping who I am? Or am I trying to slip into the party without any changes, without really submitting and showing loyalty to the king? You know, other guests, they may not notice, They may not know any different. But the king will notice. And there will be consequences for that. And you know, that part, that's the part that we really struggle with. We the Modern people do not like hearing about God's judgment. We're all, we're great. I love hearing about God's love, about God's grace, about God's mercy. But I don't want to hear about judgment. But, you know, I think we're kind of hypocritical on that because we do like hearing about judgment when it's about certain kinds of people, right? I mean, when somebody has gone off the rails and just murdered a bunch of people, what do we want to hear? We want to hear judgment. We want to see, you know, that person getting what they deserve. I mean, I've seen it online, you know, with Russia. They've, you know, invaded Ukraine and stuff. And sometimes there's videos of, you know, like, Russians getting bombed or whatever and some of the comments in these you know, things are just awful, it's just people being like yeah, you know, kill those jerks or whatever I and mean, I understand where they're coming from because obviously like, it's war or whatever but my point is, like, that's what we want we want to see punishment for people who are doing wrong, we enjoy that but when it comes to us, suddenly we're like, well that's not fair okay? and God wants us to understand well, it's not fair by your standard, but if you're living up to God's standard, well it is completely fair We understand judgment is needed. We just don't like it against ourselves. And what Jesus is trying to tell us here is there is judgment. Yes, there is. But that's not what he wants for us. He doesn't want us to to encounter his judgment. He doesn't want punishment for us. He loves us. He doesn't want that. There will be that if we reject him, but that's not what he wants. What he wants is for us to come into the feast, to come into the celebration. He's not just inviting us to avoid judgment. He's inviting us to celebrate with him. And the key to finding your life shaped by that invitation is to reflect on that wedding feast, to reflect on on the invitation, what he's invited you to, and to reflect on the one who has given it to you. And the more we understand who has invited us and what he has invited us to and what he paid to make it possible, the easier it will be to joyfully submit to him and to seek to be the kind of guest that he's looking for. You know, who we are, that doesn't earn us an invitation, right? The invitation doesn't go out to me because I'm so amazing and I'm so great. That's not it. it doesn't, I don't earn the invitation by who I am, but his invitation absolutely should change who we are. And so that's the question I want to close with today. Has God's invitation changed you? Not just have you said I accept it, but has God's invitation really shaped who you are? Let's close with a prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your great mercy to us. We thank you that you have offered us an invitation to a wonderful celebration. And Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to the celebration that you have invited us to. Help us to see how great that truly is. Help us to see how wonderful your kingdom really is. Help us to see how wonderful you are. And Father, I pray that that invitation and that hope would shape our lives. And I pray that you, by your spirit, would help our lives to be shaped in that way. I hope that you, I ask that you would help us to be people who desire more to be people who reflect your Son, people who have a deep, holy character, than to be people who are just living this life and having everything we want the way that we want it, Father. Shape our hearts, Father, so that we would be more like you. But Father, we're so grateful for your grace because we know it is only by that grace that we receive an invitation, and it is only by your grace that we can even hope to grow and mature into the kind of people you want us to be. So I pray that you would pour out that grace to each one of us and help us to look more and more like your son Jesus in our lives. Thank you for inviting us, Father. Thank you for your love. Please help us to walk in that in this coming week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.